I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas About the Public. The concept of the public is not primarily a thought about a group of people, that is to say, an actually existing finite number of people, because we never have a very concrete idea of who those people are who are part of the public. And that's one of the interesting things about it, that we assume that there are lots of strangers out there who are sharing our tastes, having similar opinions, responding to similar events, and yet we don't actually know anything about how many such people there are or, or where they live. They're imaginary. All of us today participate in imaginary communities that we call publics. As I speak, this broadcast is assembling a virtual community of listeners, a listening public. But there was a time when making things public was the exclusive property of men of rank. Matters of state, Queen Elizabeth proclaimed to her subjects in 1559, were fit to be treated only by men of authority and conveyed only to audiences of grave and discreet persons. By the 18th century, it had become meaningful to talk about public opinion as a sovereign power formed outside the state. What happened in the intervening years to make this revolution possible is the subject of this ideas series. It draws on the work of an interdisciplinary group of Canadian and American scholars, who, for the last five years, have been engaged in a research project called Making Publics. Centered on McGill University, the project's field of study has been England and Western Europe during the period that scholars now call the Early Modern, or roughly 1500 to 1700. Its aim has been nothing less than a new view of where the public comes from and how publics are composed. When we applied to the funding agency for this very large grant, we were completely honest. We said, we don't know what our object of study is. And we put this as a, we made this into a strength. We said any major project that has a well-defined object of study is just, an, uh, it's just a project that's going to sort of run things through a grinder. Whereas we are actually going to try to re- imagine early modernity. This reimagining is what will occupy us during the 14 episodes of this series. The individual programs will range over the revolutions that shaped early modern life, the Reformation and the printing press, the expansion of markets and the rise of the nation state, and over the new kinds of publicity and of privacy that they made possible. They will examine how specific arts and sciences formed publics. The new public theatres in Elizabethan England are an example. And they will look, finally, at the implications a new understanding of publics might hold for another world in upheaval. Our own. Ideas producer David Cayley has been following the work of the Making Publics project from its inception. He calls his series the origins of the modern public. Here's David Cayley. In 1791, two years after the beginning of the French Revolution, a discussion took place in the National Assembly about the constitutional significance of public opinion. One of the delegates, Nicolas Bragas, rose to speak. Before public opinion, he told the Assembly, all authorities become silent, all prejudices disappear, all particular interests are effaced. A remarkable statement, not least because the terror and the guillotine were only two years away. A high watermark of the Enlightenment faith in public opinion as the voice of reason. A century earlier, the very idea of public opinion would have been unintelligible. There was no general public. Nor would it be long after Bergas spoke, before public opinion lost its identification with critical reason. John Stuart Mill, in the early 19th century, was already writing of it as a coercive rather than a liberating force. Today, 
in the age of branding and spin, it's all the more difficult to think of public opinion cowing authority, overcoming prejudice, or dissolving special interests. And yet, much as we might smile at Burgas's naivete and mock the myth that reason ever ruled the coffee houses and salons of the 18th century, what else do we have to appeal to against tyranny and ruin but the public opinion? I have been for nearly 40 years a public broadcaster, and throughout that time I have been curious about what the public part of that designation implies. What is the public interest that the CBC exists to serve? What do we mean by public in the first place? Just not private, open to all, in full view, or something more? I was interested, therefore, when a colleague showed me a prospectus for an academic project called Making Publics, which was just beginning a five-year investigation into the origins of modern publics. An investigation, the project summary said, that would also illuminate our contemporary circumstances. I signed on as what amounted to an embedded reporter and have been following the work of the project for the last four years. This series is my report. The director of Making Publics, and its instigator and inspiration as well, is Paul Yaknan, a professor of English at McGill and a Shakespeare scholar. When I visited his Montreal home recently, I found him putting the finishing touches on a new critical edition of one of Shakespeare's history plays, Richard II. We spoke about the origins of the Making Publics project, and he traced his interest in the subject back to his days as a graduate student at the University of Toronto in the late 1970s and early 1980s. At the time, a movement called New Historicism was exciting the field of literary studies. Strongly influenced by French theorist Michel Foucault, New Historicism was preoccupied with questions of power and ideology and how they were expressed in literature. Paul Yachtin was interested but doubtful. I was very skeptical about new historicism because it wasn't historical enough. It couldn't answer fundamental questions. It couldn't answer the most fundamental historical question, which was how do things change? And when I've taught Foucault to graduate students, they very often ask, how do things change from historical period to historical period if everything seems to be bent on the reproduction of power and the relations of domination in any society. So I was very unhappy with new historicism, which seemed to leave us unable to explain historical change and unable to explain how individuals or groups of individuals made a difference in the world. How people make a difference, and how theater, his particular concern, makes a difference, were the questions Paul Yaknan needed to answer. He knew that the new commercial theater that began to appear in Elizabethan England in the 1570s was not an overtly powerful institution. He had argued the point, he told me, in an essay called The Powerless Theater. But he still felt that this new institution must in some way be changing the world around it. Pondering this problem, he began to attend more to theater as a general form of experience, rather than just looking at specific instances. Perhaps what mattered about the theater was not just this or that play text, but the very fact that so many people went to plays, and so thought about the world on the terms the theater proposed, as a stage, and a commercial stage at that. I realized that Rather than look at the, directly at the content of what Shakespeare said, that it was a better idea to look at the practices of playing and playgoing. And that's where the Making Publics project came from in the first place. And I thought, there's something going on here that is changing the shape of society in a very diffuse way by changing people's practices, changing the way they talk, and it's not that it's directly political, but that it's changing the conditions under which politics are done. 
And I realized that if, I mean, I'm kind of compressing this. Mm -hmm. I didn't really realize this. I had a sense, I guess, a notion that in order to make this argument persuasive, it couldn't just be about English theater. It had to be a broader argument. If we're going to talk about how works of art and intellect change politics, not directly, but by changing the conditions of politics, we need to bring in other forms of art and intellectual work, and also on the continent as well as in England. So I got in touch with the people in early modern studies whose work I most admired and liked. And I said, I want to do a, a project on how the growth of an entertainment market changed the shape of society and created a public sphere. And so I, I was able to recruit these wonderful people to come to Montreal. And they came, I guess it was 2003, many years ago. And we sat in this large room in a hotel. And the first thing that happened is Stephen Mullaney put his hand up and he said, I'm really sorry to interrupt uh, Paul, but uh, nobody in this room thinks that there was a public sphere in early modern Europe. So the only thing, the only term that gives this project its urgency now is something we don't think existed. And everybody nodded. Yeah, that's true. Well, everyone had come to Montreal. We were settled in for two days in hotel rooms and it seemed like a terrible situation. Paul Yaknan told his colleagues that he was interested in investigating how institutions like the commercial theater laid the foundations for a public sphere. His friend and colleague Stephen Mullaney reminded him that there was no such thing in early modern England. Yaknan recognized that he had argued the same point himself. All right, but what's a public sphere? Well, that term was put into play by German philosopher Jürgen Habermas in an influential book published in German in 1962, but for complicated reasons, not available in English until 1989, when it appeared as the structural transformation of the public sphere. Habermas argues in this book that during the course of the 18th century in Western Europe, publicity became a means by which citizens could influence the state. In the years between then and now, the word publicity has become pretty deeply imbued with connotations of management and manipulation, and a whole history is summed up in that change in the word's associations. But in the 18th century, according to Habermas, publicity was a principle by which public authorities could be called before the bar of public opinion and made to give reasons for their actions. The public sphere, then, was a space outside the state in which the associations and conversations of private persons took on public relevance. It was, Habermas recognizes, a bourgeois sphere, underpinned by private property and the free market, but he argues that it also transcended its class origins and at least pointed to the possibility of a world in which people could associate in what Habermas calls their common quality as rational beings. It was this public sphere that was at issue in the conversation Paul Yaknin and his colleagues were having in Montreal. Some of Habermas's arguments are controversial, but there is pretty general agreement that the public, in our contemporary sense, came into being in the 18th century. So what was going on before 1700? Yaknin and the others eventually came up with the idea that though there was as yet no general public, one could not speak, as 18th century people began to do, of the public opinion, yet there were embryonic forms of association that could be recognized as individual publics and that were beginning to actively form themselves around practices like playgoing. They called their intuition making publics. So we had the phrase. We weren't quite sure what it meant. In fact, it would take us two further years to know what it meant. But it seemed like the right 
phrase. It seemed like a clue that we could follow, that would, that would show us our path. And that's how, the, how we started the project. And when we applied to Shirk, to the funding agency, for this very large grant, we were completely honest. We said, we don't know what our object of study is. And we're going to put into our research plan two years that we were going to spend trying to define our object of study. And we put this as a, we made this into a strength. We said any major project that has a well-defined object of study is just an uh, is just a project that's going to sort of run things through a grinder. Whereas we are actually going to try to reimagine early modernity. In what follows in this idea series, you'll hear some of what Paul Yaknin and his colleagues have come up with. I'll begin today by sketching in very broad strokes the 16th century world in which modern publics had their origin. Every era of the world can plausibly claim to be a transitional age, and most do. One of the historian's great pleasures lies in pointing out that today's news is a lot more like yesterday's news than those innocently adrift in the present usually realize. Nevertheless, there are periods when the past shatters more thoroughly than at other times. And one of them is surely the world that scholars used to call the Renaissance, and now more typically designate as the early modern. This shattering was, in the first place, cosmological. Europe was discovering that the world was dramatically unlike the integrated cosmos that appeared on medieval maps. Here's historian David Harris-Sachs, a professor at Reed College in Oregon and a founding member of the Making Publics Project. There's a surprising unhinging of the received idea of how the world is that comes about at the beginning of the 16th century. One of the principal elements in unhinging it is the discovery of a fourth continent. You have this long, long history of understanding the world as consisting of Asia, Africa, and Europe, depicted in a tripartite map, a map of Mundi, or sometimes even more stylized map that looks like a, a T enclosed within an, an O. A T-O map is the, these in the, go, those go back to the 12th century, and the uh, the Mapamundi are these maps that, sh among the most famous of them is the Hereford Mapamundi, and it's on one single ox skin, and the whole point is to show the parts depicted on, on something that is a whole in, in and of itself, a seamless skin, and it, that's usually depicts Jerusalem as its center with Christ triumphant there, and then the continents arrayed around it, and then the ocean around the outside. Well, Columbus didn't expect to run into uh, the American continents. If, in fact, it's, it's well known if he hadn't run into them, he probably would have died of uh, in the middle of in the middle of because he, he so badly miscalculated the circumference of the Earth that he didn't have anything like the supplies he needed to to make it to Asia if, he, if there hadn't been a North America or a South America to stop at. But that's a surprise because. The North and South America are not self-evidently in the Bible or in the ancient geographies. And that then forces a rethinking of a great many, uh, uh, many things. And it also exposes uh, Europeans to a whole encounters with peoples they'd never met, commodities they've never met, geographical environments they'd never met, and uh, which, for which they don't have any convenient theories yet. Columbus was a great resistor to what it is he found. He, he refused to believe that he had found another continent because it created, so destabilized his worldview. Even when he knew that he had found this enormously long river, the Orinoco, because he, he saw the tidal bore of the Orinoco and he knew there had to be a very long river uh, that uh, could produce so much water to create the, the tidal bore, he had to invent the idea that this was one of the four rivers that come from Eden, 
<laughs> and in order to do that, he had to give you a description of the earth, of the shape of the earth, neither a, not as a globe or even as an uh, oval, but as a kind of pear-shaped thing. <laughs> so one of the things that unhinges the story is this discovery of new things you don't have a place for, and you have to start to sort of find a place for in your uh, way of conceiving of the world. New continents, new peoples, new flora and fauna, new commodities, all testify to the overwhelming novelty to which people in the early 16th century were exposed. Another was the appearance of the national state. Take the word state. Until about the beginning of the 16th century, it never really meant anything other than the condition of something. So the state of the king or the state of England is what its condition is like at the moment. To think of it as, a, as an autonomous set of institutions that have a life of their own, independent of the people who are there at the time, that's new. And that really does come into being around 1500 or so, and uh, the, the usage changes, and you can begin to see people thinking about the state as an agent rather than, the, than simply the state as a, a condition uh, and thinking of kings and such as agents. And uh, empires certainly had uh, regimes that could rule, but they didn't penetrate very deep into the life of any, any small community. Those small communities lived rather independent lives apart from a certain limited range of things. The state could extract, the empire could extract revenue, it could uh, mount an army, but it wasn't trying to govern the local community on a day-to-day -day basis. So empires did not have monopolies of the legitimate use of force in their own territory. There were separate princes and kings and such that had power. There were warlords. The church managed to maintain itself in some independence from the state. Even within the church, the same kind of a story can be told. The pope's authority didn't penetrate into village confraternities and uh, craft guild confraternities. And one of the biggest worries in the Reformation for the Catholic Church was how to get control over these autonomous centers of religious and spiritual activity and uh, put them under a hierarchical structure. Along with these political changes came sweeping economic changes. Population growth, urbanization, the expansion of trade, and the influx of gold and silver from the New World all helped to heat up the European economy. Prices soared, and new opportunities for profit undermined traditional relationships of fealty and mutual obligation. Tenants were dispossessed, and feudal tenures broken as landholders began to pursue market rents. New instruments of credit appeared. And all this contributed to a situation in which practice ran far ahead of received moral principles. The conventions of thought about getting and spending are really challenged by this, uh, this set of developments. Most people had some activity that they had to undertake in the market, but it was by no means the majority of most people's livelihoods was not earned in market transactions. Most people lived on the land. Much of what they got, they made for themselves or traded, if they at all, uh, by a form of uh, barter. Um, they, there were certain things they needed to have money for, and they, but only a very limited degree. So you have a kind of dual economy, an economy that is on the one side have people participate in market transactions and make things or sell things in markets. And for the other, they're engaged in something like gift exchange or, uh, or patron-client relations or living off the land and, uh, in one way or another. One of the things that seem, what happens in this period is that cities start to grow quite rapidly after the beginning of the 16th century. London is the classic example because it's maybe about 50,000 people and 
1,500, it's certainly 200,000 people around. In 1,600, it's a 400%, a four, fourfold increase. It's almost 600,000 in 1,700. How do you feed those people? They have to, food has to come from somewhere. It comes from the country, so you start getting market-oriented ori- activities to supply these people who are, you have a, a reorientation of the economy and quite significant way. So you end up having larger numbers of people engaged exclusively in market activities, or almost exclusively in market activities, and more people engaged with more of their lives in market activities. And that then creates a whole series of tensions, problems, for the standard rules of good neighborliness, of uh, the, the standard rules of what's known in the business is the moral economy. Uh, it's hard to avoid seeking your own advantage and, and feeling guilty for doing so under these circumstances. So there's a new environment and a, and a need to try to th- rethink the way in which you can live under these kinds of pressures as m- you, you rely, you and your family rely more and more on transactions in and, 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 and a marketplace and less and less on face-to-face relations with neighbors and, or independent you know, extraction of, of sustenance from, from your own resources. So greed then becomes an interesting issue. It's an old question. It becomes an interesting issue how to deal with, how to deal with it. David Harris Sachs speaks here of a dual economy and of the doubleness that entered people's dealings when they might be operating at one moment according to the impersonal laws of supply and demand, and at the next within a world of gift exchanges and traditional commons. The shock of the new, which we feel keenly in our own time, may have been even more acute at the time we're talking about. But of course, there were also many ways in which the new was domesticated, and drawn within old and familiar stories. Harris Sachs finds an example in a book he's been studying, Richard Hacklett's Principal Voyages, Navigations, and Discoveries of the English Nation, a compendium of the writings of English explorers first published in 1589. Hacklett was interested in fostering the arts of navigation and inspiring his countrymen to support new projects of exploration and colonization, both very modern objectives. But like Columbus, taking the Orinoco for one of the rivers that flow from Eden, Hacklett sets his chronicles of discovery in the context of a universal history of salvation. And so the news that he imparts about previously unknown people and places is comfortably slotted into the reassuring arc of the Holy Bible. Starts with the fall, goes through the Tower of Babel and the dispersion of the people and the confusion of tongues, and ultimately will end with the reunification of all peoples and the return of Christ and the end of history. So it's a conventional story in that respect. What's not conventional is what Hacklett thinks the mechanism for this will be. He thinks the mechanism is going to be trade. It's going to be the goodwill that's created between peoples by making their exchange relations necessary to one another. That then paves the way for a better understanding uh, and peaceful relations and a better understanding between them that can then be a stepping stone to this next next thing. Hacklett picks up, this is not an original idea of Hacklett's, there's a, a large number of people in the 16th century who think trade works this way. Erasmus says, God created the world in such a way as to make, uh, uh, with uh, scarcities in one place and abundance is another, to make friendship necessary. <laughs> but I think the idea is that the, the material interest that's created then becomes the basis for building other forms of advantage, of mutual advantage, of mutual benefit, including ultimately the sharing of the one truth. The story of Babel where one language was broken into many, and Pentecost, where the many were reunited into one, was often told in the 16th century, 
and unsettling discoveries brought within a providential design. But the Reformation and the birth of multiple forms of Protestantism made religion a source of discord and disorientation as well. Whole countries became Protestant at the behest of their rulers, and the people were obliged to follow, whatever their views. One effect was a profound disruption of the relationship between generations and the relationship between the living and the dead. People accustomed to praying for their dead in purgatory discovered overnight that purgatory had been abolished. Stephen Mullaney is a professor of English at the University of Michigan and a founder of the Making Publics Project. It was his crucial objection, as you heard earlier, that led to the project's getting its name and initial direction. He has a story that illustrates this disappearance of the dead from the scenes of everyday life after Henry VIII broke with the Roman Church in the 1530s. In London, during the reign of Henry's son, Edward VI, which was a period of radical Protestantism, uh, much more radical Protestantism than Elizabeth instituted or than Henry when he was wearing his Protestant rather than his neo-Catholic hat instituted. And this is just years before Edward's half-sister Mary became queen and returned the country to Catholicism. But under Edward's reign, there's a certain moment in 1549 when one night, middle of the night, the ossuary, also known as the Charnel House at St. Paul's Cathedral. Ossuary, bone place. A place of bones where the bones of the dead who'd been buried in the graveyard at St. Paul's were housed after they were removed from the graves to make room for the newly dead. The ossuary, or charnel house, that had existed in the basement of St. Paul's for over 400 years. So imagine this. This is not all of London. This is the, the immediate vicinity of St. Paul's. But this is 400 years of worth of Londoners. One night, John Stowe says that over a thousand cartloads of bones were emptied out in one night from the ossuary at St. Paul's. The entire charnel house was emptied out in the dark of night. All night long, carts went backwards and forwards, emptying out the charnel house, taking the bones out to a marsh outside the city walls in Finsbury Field, dumping them. Afterwards, that marsh was filled in with soilage, he says, from the city, with sewage. <laughs> That's the effort to sever affective relations between the present generation of living Londoners and their quite material sense of their own past and their ancestors. The emptying of the ossuary at St. Paul's was part of an effort by evangelical Protestants to sever, as Stephen Mullaney says, the ties that bound the living and the dead. This effort, like most of Protestantism, had strong biblical sanction, but it ruptured a relationship which had been integral to popular religiosity in the Middle Ages. Natalie Davis has a wonderful phrase in an essay of hers from some time back, trying to register the importance of the dead in late medieval society throughout Europe and she says that along with youth and adulthood, the dead were one of the primary age groups of medieval society, and considering their number, by far the largest <laughs> age group. So much of the culture revolved around the dead in the graveyard, the dead as figures for whom one said intercessory prayers, such a large part of living society, of day-to-day -day experience for people, that this whole cult of the dead, uh, uh, the, the, the entire concept of purgatory, 
where those dead who one said prayers for were housed, who was, when one could still help, was one of the focuses of the Reformation, one of the things the Reformation most wanted to undo in medieval society was this, this phenomenal power of the dead. The theological animus against purgatory was keen. In purgatory, according to Roman Catholic doctrine, the souls of the dead are purged of their sins before entering heaven. And this time of purgation can be shortened by the prayers and alms of the living. The Reformers decried the abuse of this doctrine. For example, the sale by the Church of what were called indulgences, or time off one sentence in purgatory. And they also objected to it as a form of superstition. But purgatory was much more than a belief. It was also a set of practices that were integral to a way of life. And this is Stephen Mullaney's point about the officially sanctioned raid on the St. Paul ossuary. Protestant authorities were attempting, as historian Keith Thomas once wrote, to produce a generation that was spiritually indifferent to the fate of its ancestors, who didn't care that their grandparents, according to current teaching, were condemned to hell because they had belonged to the wrong variety of Christianity. And in this way, the Reformation brought about a decisive and often traumatic break with the past. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1, on Sirius Satellite Radio 137, and cbc.ca. Our program is called The Origins of the Modern Public, and it's presented by David Cayley. The break with the religious past occasioned by the Reformation was repeated in the world of knowledge. During the Middle Ages, ancient authority had been revered. But now it was becoming plain that the ancients had got quite a number of things badly wrong and completely overlooked others. The discovery of the Americas, for example, completely wrecked the existing scheme of geographical and cosmological science. The resulting crisis of knowledge and authority is one of the studies of David Borokov, a member of the Making Publics Project and a professor of Hispanic Studies at McGill. People have always known that the moon exists. You can see the moon. But America didn't exist, and furthermore, its existence was denied. And that played a huge role, not just in ancient culture, but in medieval culture and in ecclesiastical culture. If you look at um, at the maps of the ancient world before America, you had three land masses, Africa, Asia, and Europe. And very often they were depicted as one body with three parts, which um, was very convenient for church culture because you had a trinity that was both one and three and, and other things of that sort. And furthermore, if you look at the names that were often given as subtitles to the landmasses. They were the three sons of Noah. So where do you put America? There is no place for America in a scheme like that. The existence of a fourth mass ruins the balance of the whole scheme, ruins the, um, the niceness, the, the artistic niceness of the scheme. And so America was a truly revolutionary event that caused people not just to add something but to rethink what they thought they knew. This rethinking led to the idea that the moderns, as people were just beginning to call themselves, might, in some respects at least, be superior to the ancients. An index of this superiority was the fact that the moderns possessed things that the ancients had lacked. And by far the most frequently mentioned of these things were printing with movable types, gunpowder, and the nautical compass. This idea of the three great inventions which define modernity 
seized thinkers and writers all over Western Europe in the 16th century, and, in David Borokov's view, made a public. For me, what was most interesting is not what these inventions mean today, or even who invented them, or even exactly how they functioned, but rather how the idea of the three inventions together just took off. And it took off among a who's who of European culture. People such as Francis Bacon, the historian of the French language, Joachim Duberet, Michel de Montaigne, Francois Rabelais. It's the who's who of the 16th century. And they're all talking about the same thing. These are the three greatest inventions of modern times. These are people on both sides of the Reformation. People are writing about these inventions in French, in Latin, in Spanish, Italian, English. And so all of a sudden we have um, what you can really call a public of humanists, that's their commonality, who are taken with this idea that the moderns had certain things that the ancients never had, and that in fact allowed the moderns not only to compete with the ancients, but to surpass the ancients. And this is a great emblem of modernity. This is an idea that is sort of the quintessence of humanism and of modernity. How do you explain these things? How do you explain modernity? Well, here's an example. And you can't say that these are all people who are moved by the same material forces, the same spiritual forces, although for most of them, providence played a great role in the discovery of the inventions. You can't say that they're moved by political forces. It's a very interesting kind of public. The figure of the three inventions allowed 16th century writers and scholars to assert their difference from the ancients. And these were people for whom ancient authority remained formidable, which makes it the more remarkable in David Borokov's view, that they dared to call themselves modern, and thus to acknowledge that a fundamental rupture had occurred. I'm interested in those people who choose to define themselves as modern, which, which I think is a, is a real interesting step to take, because once you put a label on yourself as modern, you're making a break you're making a difference with the past. And for me, that's much more interesting than the specific items that are cited by people as those points of difference. There, there's something that's spurring them not to think of themselves as inheritors, not to think of themselves as continuers, not to think of themselves as the legacy of something. To call oneself modern was to admit that the received way of understanding the world had shattered. Tis all in pieces, all coherence gone, the English poet John Donne wrote in the early 17th century. New philosophy calls all in doubt. The element of fire is quite put out. Vera Keller thinks that modernity is the reassembling of the pieces. She was a postdoctoral fellow with the Making Publics Project when I interviewed her, but will soon take up a permanent post at the University of Oregon. Early modern people, in her view, were improvising, rummaging together a future, as she puts it. And one form of this improvisation was a new account of what it means to be public. As you know, the word public flipped in meaning in this period. It used to refer to an individual person, a public man, who had an office versus a private man. We still have a reflection of that in the army terms that we use today when we talk about a private in the army. He's a private because he's not a captain, and therefore he's not a public man. He didn't have a place in a feudal hierarchy. So you were public if you had a place on a feudal hierarchy. 
which is very different from the way we think about the meaning of that word now, where a public exists on a horizon, on a plane, and they were all members of the public, and it has nothing to do with the hierarchy. And it's not about a person, an identified person in a family that connects in a specific way with other chains of power. It's basically anonymous, you know, the members of the public. That is a huge transformation that has totally transformed the world today and is one of the key ideas in understanding modernity. And so um, that is why we're devoting all this energy to understanding that transformation. For me, what public came to mean was instead of a public man versus a private man, a public was a collection of private people or particulars. So it's not one single person anymore. It's a lot of people. And those particular people are all private people. They all have their own concerns and interests, etc. And then they come together to form states, constitutions, democracies, etc., in which we find a way to make all of our private interests and concerns mesh together in order to pursue overall the public good. That's, you know, the broad stroke. But what in the uh, even broader view <laughs> has happened is that the fundamental cultural obsession with hierarchies, with holistic views of the, of the universe, with an encyclopedia of knowledge that everything could be contained in and everything could be made one and whole, which, you know, if you look at the history of philosophy, going back to the beginning of the idea of the encyclopedia, this is what you're trying to learn in school. You're trying to learn how does everything connect you know, how does fire connect to water, connect to earth? How does it all interact in this marvelous way that accounts for every phenomenon? And it's, it's a very systematic view of the world. And then you get this uh, breakdown of these knowledge systems in which nothing makes sense anymore. The element of fire is quite put out. Everything falls into disarray. And you have this world in fragments. And that's what I'm interested in looking at is the collection of these fragments. Those fragments are both things, pieces of knowledge, commodities and people and you build a new world by collecting fragments and filling in the blanks so you basically start with a clean slate you say no the knowledge that we have the world that we have it wasn't whole it wasn't complete we didn't know everything we in fact have vast gaps we have holes that we want to fill in and we have the power to fill them in and so let's collect whatever we can to rummage together a new future and that new future is what we live in today Vera Keller sees evidence of the change she's been talking about in the shifts undergone by a whole series of key terms during the course of the early modern period. Science, which had once meant knowledge of universals, comes to mean knowledge of particulars. Experiment, which had referred to general experience, becomes the word which we recognize today as the name for a carefully constructed and controlled staging of nature. Political philosophy alters in the same way, Keller says. The frontispiece of Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, published in the mid-17th century, shows a giant crowned figure which is actually composed on close inspection of hundreds of tiny individuals. For that great leviathan, called a commonwealth or state, Hobbes says, is but an artificial man. You once had a political body, a corpus, that was organic and was whole and was harmonious, and there was a whole system that made sense, that was rational. Everything had to be kept in balance. There were humors that had to be balanced, and we understood what was needed, and nothing could go its own way because everything had to fit together in a system. Something radically changed in the 17th century when all of a sudden you now have a constructed body made up of tiny individual pieces, which really would be just fine on their own. They'd be at least be alive. So on the way between having one body, one political body, to having this constructed body, Hobbes is Leviathan made up of tons of little people, is this conception of the public going from being just the head of that body to the public being this collection of little particulars. Um, and in order to keep those particulars together, you now have to offer them some sort of reason for coming together. It's not enough just to say, well, without the head, the body dies, of course. Now you all of a sudden realize, no, we don't actually know what a state is anymore. We don't, in fact, know what brings people together. We don't know what keeps them moving. We don't know what advances them. We don't know 
how money is made. We don't know how invention works. We need to study all this. Anything that's useful, anything that helps, is what needs to be studied, which includes knowledge of nature, which includes knowledge of invention, which included back then history. It doesn't anymore. Um, and so the state must advance useful knowledge and collect it from all over versus the way philosophy, political philosophy had been done previously, which is all operating on universals um, and ideal politics. Now they actually need to know what reality was like. You know, we need to go out there and survey people. We need to find out how, what our population is and what they want and what they don't have and what we can give them and what we could make them come together and make them produce and make them not revolt. We need to study them. And so that study of the public can also be seen as an object of the state. If you see, viewing the population as actually what is now making up the state and as an object of study by the state. Because the state no longer presumes, well, as the head of a body, that's all I need to know. They, in fact, develop a whole new information state based on the survey of their resources, their natural resources, including their people, and the ways to transform those natural resources through art, through invention, through engineering, through um, manufacture, in a competitive way with other states. During the course of the 16th and 17th centuries, according to Vera Keller, the public was reimagined as a collection of individuals. The particles that made up society were in one sense more free to form their own associations, in another more controlled as the state made them the objects of new forms of discipline. And this new world, she thinks, is our world, which is why we ought to try and understand how it came to be. My main view that I, I wish people would think about is that, uh, you know that 19th century commonplace that if you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat it? That's what most people think is the reason why you, why you do history, is you're doomed to repeat it. But historians don't think you're doomed to repeat it. Historians don't think in cycles of history the way they did, say, in the 14th century. We think in terms of arrows of time. You're not doomed to repeat anything. What you're doomed to do is to continue it. Early modern Europe has established so much of the modern world and so many of the ideas that we have in our brain were thought up once upon a time for some reason that made sense perhaps, perhaps not, at that time. We continue to have those ideas inside our heads and we don't even realize that they're the products of history. Unless you understand the history, you have no choice to examine those ideas and to decide whether or not they make sense, whether they're moral, whether they have anything to do with you or your culture. And so it's only by understanding your whole world as a historical product, and specifically as a product of early modern Europe, that you can do anything to change your world. Today's program has looked at the origins of the Making Publics project and at the broad outlines of the world of early modern Europe that it set out to reimagine. In upcoming episodes of this series, I'll look in more detail at how new publics took shape, beginning next time with a program on the Reformation and on the ways in which religious controversy gave rise to Europe's first instance of a public sphere. On Ideas, you've listened to The Origins of the Modern Public by David Cayley. His series continues tomorrow night. It's also available as a podcast at cbc.ca slash podcasting. Production was by David Cayley, Dave Field, and Bernie Lucht. To find out about upcoming Ideas programs, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to cbc.ca slash ideas and follow the links. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. I'm Paul Kennedy. The hourly news is next on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius Satellite Radio.